All right, without further ado, let's get to the business at hand. Although, you guys know that from time to time, I like to share little snippets about me. Helps you kind of get to know me a little bit, know where I came from. Like, you all know that my favorite sport is... Yeah, no hesitation there. Favorite food is... There you go. Well, everything, yeah, but pizza I'm really partial to. But I'm going to share another little factoid about myself here this morning, and that is I was born in Chicago. I was born at Roseland Community Hospital on the south side of Chicago. That's why I say Chicago. My family, we lived in Roseland until I was about five, at which time we moved to South Holland. South Holland. Some of you are familiar with South Holland. And if you know South Holland, you know that it was a community that was predominantly Dutch, right? It was also a community of churches. I believe that the water, water tower still has the praying hands on it, right? With the community of churches thing on it. I see a nod there. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, back in the day, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting one of these Reformed churches, right? Dutch Reformed churches. So you couldn't swing. So they were really close. You get what I'm saying, right? You guys also know I don't like cats, right? But they were almost on every corner. And the joke was always, quite honestly, how did this Swedish family, because we are Swedish, how did this Swedish family infiltrate this Dutch community, let alone become members of one of these Dutch churches? But my parents managed it. They did it. They pulled it off. But I digress a bit from my initial revelation that I was born in Chicago. Now, I'm guessing we have a pretty wide variety of birthplaces represented here this morning. So my first question is, where were you born? Hang on, hang on. Anybody like, anybody like me from Chicago? Okay, we got quite a few, right? Okay. And some of the other ones? Nebraska, I heard. Tennessee, I heard. Ohio. Kansas. Okay, okay, okay. Hang on, hang on. We love all those places, right? But who was who the furthest away from here born here this morning? Uh, we, you know what, China? Seriously, China? Okay. Germany, Italy. So, okay, which is furthest? Who's the winner? Who's the winner? So we have three winners. Let's just say we three have, have three winners. Deacons, what do we have for the winners? What's the prize? We, we, we have no prize for them. Well, you have the dubious distinction of saying you were the furthest born of anyone here this morning. But, you know, here's my other question. Why were you born where you were born? Why not in England? Why not in Germany? Why not in Brazil or Somalia or Japan? Why were you born where you were born? Because your parents were there, but let me tell you, it was exactly where God wanted you to be born. 
I was born in Chicago because God already knew the path that my life was going to take. He had a plan for me. Now, obviously, based on what I've already shared, you know that I grew up in the church. I was raised by good Christian parents. But that did not stop me, friends, from turning my back on God. As a teenager, I said, no, I don't need God. I don't need the church. I don't need any of this stuff. I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. No rules, none of this, thou shalt not this, thou shalt not that. And really what happened is I embarked upon a journey. I began searching. I began searching for something that would bring meaning. And I searched, friends, in some really, really dark places. Immersed in a culture of alcohol and drugs and inappropriate relationships, I was in utter darkness. But all the way, God was with me. Whether I wanted it or not, whether I knew it or not, he was always there. And when I look back, I could see that at times he was trying to get my attention, sometimes very subtly, but then one cold October morning, he allowed a drunk driver to swerve into my lane and bam, hit me head on. He was doing about 50, I was doing about 35, friends. I should have been killed. I should not be here today. But God said no. He said, I have a plan. He said, I can use you. Despite despite my brokenness and the darkness and the sin, he said, I can use you. And his plan has brought me to this place, friends, here today to be with you, God's people. And make no mistake, God has been orchestrating the events of each and every one of your lives to bring you here today, this moment. Because he has a plan for you as well. He can use you. Now, you may be asking, um, what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Well, if you've been with us, you know that we're in the middle of a series of messages I'm calling, Do You See What I See? And in this series, we're looking back to some of the Old Testament prophecies to see how God has orchestrated the events of history in order to fulfill his plan of redemption For a lost people, which culminates in this day that we look forward to and celebrate in just a couple weeks, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, the last couple weeks, we've looked at some prophecies that have really kind of required us to dig in a little bit. If you recall, we said that in order to fully understand a given passage or a given prophecy, we have to look 
beyond the surface. We have to look beyond the words to fully understand how this prophecy points to Jesus Christ. We saw in Psalm 72 how the nation of Israel prayed for God's kingdom of peace to come, peace on earth. And we came to understand how they waited with great anticipation for the birth of Jesus. And in the same way, friends, today, we not only look forward to the celebration of that day, we look forward with great anticipation to the day that he returns. The day that we see him face to face. And his peace will rule on earth forever. Last week, we dug in and, and, and we saw all that pointed to Jesus and the star, the star, that symbol of hope and victory prophesied by Balaam some 900 years or so before Jesus was born. Today, we're going to look at a prophecy that doesn't really require the same level of exploration as the ones we've studied in the past. In fact, it is one of the most explicit prophecies in all the Old Testament. Because this prophecy names the town in which the coming Messiah would be born. Now this prophecy is found in Micah chapter 5. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5, we're going to focus on pretty much the first five verses. Now, Micah may be a little bit of a challenge to find, right? It's kind of at the old, uh, at the end of the Old Testament. It's right after Jonah. You have Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. If you hit Habakkuk, you've gone too far. So Micah, so we understand who this guy is, he's one of the minor prophets. See, all the prophets that we read in the end of the Old Testament, they all worked in the same silver mine. Oh, come on, people. It's a joke, you know. They're not miners. Oh, my goodness. Okay. We won't try that one again. They're minor, M-I-N-O-R. Then you want to know why they're minor. And it's not because they're less important. Why? Books are shorter, right? Those guys, Amos, Micah, they, they were contemporaries of uh, Isaiah. It just so happened that Isaiah wrote this really big book. They wrote much smaller ones. So they are minor prophets. M-I-N. Yeah, anyway. So to set the stage for what we're going to read, let's, let's really understand the context in which all these prophets wrote. So it's, it's 700 years after the Israelites entered the promised land. Talked about that last week in the book of Numbers. It's 700 years since then. It's been 300 years since David reigned. And obviously then his son Solomon's reign is also long over. And the kingdom of Israel is now divided. In the north is the kingdom of Israel, in the south, the kingdom of Judah. Now, Micah had already prophesied the fall of Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, Assyria, which had risen as this military superpower, 
had already laid siege to Israel. They'd pretty much destroyed everything, and they carried off all the survivors off into exile. Now, any guesses as to why God would allow this to happen? Anybody? Sin, right? He was judging the nations. It was because of their sin. In fact, in verse 1 of Micah chapter 5, I'm sorry, in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, all this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. He was judging their sin. And Judah, Judah was no better. Judah was no better. Micah ministered to Judah, and he called them out. He called them out on their sin. He's often referred to as the prophet of the poor and the oppressed. We've talked about the poor and the oppressed before, right? The injustice that was going on in ancient Israel. Micah was calling them out. He was calling out the authorities, the political authorities, the authorities in the church for the use of power, but the abuse of power. He called out the nations for the rampant idolatry. He called out false prophets for leading the people astray. And then in verse 1 of Micah chapter 5, he writes this. He says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. And what Micah is saying here is they're coming for us. They're coming south, the Assyrians, and the entire nation, the entire nation will be destroyed and humbled by this foreign power. And even the kings will bear their insults. So Micah's message, what we see, is a message of judgment. It's a message of judgment. But we also want to look and see that it's a message of forgiveness as well. Because Micah promises that God still loves his people. And he gives them hope for the future. Listen to what he writes in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. Now, how often does the Bible refer to God's people, and that means us, right? How often does the Bible refer to us as sheep? Quite a lot, right? And what do we know about sheep? Okay, I was going to soften it a little bit and say they're ignorant, but you're right, they're dumb. Okay, sheep by and large are ignorant. We, by and large, are ignorant. We're ignorant to the dangers around us, and we tend to wander. It's our nature. And Isaiah, he, the contemporary of Micah, he agrees. He writes in Isaiah 53, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We're all wanderers. We're all sinners. We're all searching. We're all in need of a shepherd... And it is that shepherd that Micah promises. We see this promise in verse 4 of chapter 5. It says, He, the shepherd, 
will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. Those are two things that we've heard in other prophecies, right? Peace to the ends of the earth. Micah says it's coming in this shepherd. This shepherd. Who's this shepherd? It's Jesus, right? In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I am the one that they've written about in the Old Testament. I am that shepherd that Micah wrote about. So we've, we've, we've really kind of looked at some of the subtext to Micah's prophecies, but we said in the beginning that our focus is going to be on this town, right? On the town. And in verse 2 of Micah chapter 5, Micah just comes out, he just spells it out, and he says exactly where this shepherd would be born. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, the Jewish scholars of Jesus' day, they read this as, as a clear prediction of the Messiah's birthplace. How do we know that they regarded this in that way? Well, if you recall last week, we looked at the story of who? The wise men, right? The magi. And we said that the wise men, they followed his star, and it stopped over Jerusalem. And they asked a question, right? What did they ask? Where is this one who has been born king of the Jews, right? And we stopped our reading right there because our focus last week was on the star. But if you read a little bit further, you see that this guy Herod, who was a really bad guy, by the way, he was the Jewish king, the Roman Jewish king, and, and he was always worried about threats to his reign, threats to his kingdom. And, and, and he hears now about this, this king. This, this new king. So he calls all the chief priests and teachers of the law together and he says, all right, where is this new king supposed to be born? And what did they tell him? Bethlehem. And then they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Right there in Luke. So it is crystal clear that this king... This king whose star we read about in Numbers chapter 24, the star that the wise men followed. This king who, would, who the nation of Israel prayed for in Psalm 72, the one who would bring peace on earth. This good shepherd that Micah promised, who would shepherd his people in the strength of the Lord, he would be born in Bethlehem. It's clear. But it begs the question, 
Why Bethlehem? Why this, this tiny, sleepy little shepherding community? This town was so unimportant that Joshua, when enumerating the cities of Judah, didn't even mention it. No mention of Bethlehem at all. And there's very, very few references to Bethlehem in the Old Testament. We do see it in Genesis chapter 35. There we read that Jacob's wife, Rachel, she died there giving birth to Benjamin, and she was buried there. We know also that Bethlehem was where Ruth was redeemed by Boaz, her guardian redeemer. We also know it to be where David was born, and in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read about Samuel anointing David as king in his father Jesse's house in Bethlehem. But still, why, why this tiny little out-of-the-way town? Why not a big city? I mean, certainly that would have made more sense. Why not Jerusalem? Jerusalem, that was the, the, the center of the religious and political life for the Jews. And Jerusalem's mentioned over 600 times in the Old Testament. But God didn't choose Jerusalem. Hebron. Hebron would have been a smart choice. And I don't mean across 65 Hebron. Right? I mean Hebron in ancient Israel. Because Hebron was actually played a, a significant role in the history of the Hebrew nation. It is mentioned over 70 times in the Old Testament. God could have chosen uh, imperial and political Rome. He could have chosen cultural and intellectual Athens, but he didn't. He chose Bethlehem. Now, when we talked earlier about where each of us was born, we said that it was all because it was part of God's plan. And friends, that is absolutely true about where Jesus was born. God sent his one and only son to enter into our realm in Bethlehem because that was his plan. And that fulfilled all the prophecies that the Holy Spirit had inspired the prophets of old to write about. This was his plan. But friends, I believe that there are some other things that we can learn from this insignificant little town to kind of help us to answer more of the question why. Why God chose Bethlehem. Well, the first thing I think we learn is humility. We learn humility. You know, when royalty is born around the world, it happens with a lot of fanfare, right? A lot of celebration, usually in a big city, very often in a castle or in a palace. That's pretty much the way it happened for the British royal family for hundreds of years. The current king of England, Charles, he was born at Buckingham Palace. His son, William, who was now heir to the throne, he was the first one to be born in a hospital. Before that, they were all born in a palace. And there's celebration and all kinds of fanfare. And then there's a royal bulletin that's placed in a golden frame and placed out in front of Buckingham Palace. But Jesus had none of that. He was born 
to humble parents. He was born in a stable with a trough for a bed. No royal fanfare. He wanted to identify himself with us and to teach us humility. Jesus is our model of humility. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that though he was by nature God, he did not consider equality with God as a prize to be displayed, but he emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant. When he was born in human likeness and his appearance was like that of any other man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself. We learn humility from Bethlehem. You know, we learn in our study of Proverbs that God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Peter built upon that by saying in 1 Peter chapter 5, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What a beautiful promise for those who humble themselves before God. God chose Bethlehem to teach us humility. Second thing that Bethlehem teaches us is that it is Jesus that came to satisfy our spiritual hunger. You know what the name Bethlehem means? It translates literally house of bread. House of bread. What a fitting place for our Savior to be born. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never be hungry. The one who believes in me will never be thirsty. Friends, is this world hungry? Do we see thirst? Absolutely. No question in my mind. Everywhere we see people searching. We see people looking for something to satisfy their souls. I know, friends, because I was one of those searchers. Looking for meaning. Looking to fill what philosopher Blaise Pascal refers to as a God-shaped hole that exists in the heart of every single person. Everybody has it. And no matter what created thing we try to pour into that hole, whether it's money or possessions or drugs or alcohol or relationships, and, and, and no matter how much we try to pour in, and, and, and we do, right, because we keep pouring and we keep pouring and we keep pouring, friends, the only thing, the only thing that can fill that void, that can fill that vacuum is God made known through Jesus Christ. I know that to be true because I've lived it. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are you searching for something to fill that void in your life? It's Jesus, friends. It's Jesus. Turn to him. The bread that he gives you will satisfy, and it is offered to everyone. Everyone. 
Last thing, quickly, that Bethlehem teaches us, and, and that, this, this may be the most astounding and the most important of any of these, God can use you. God can use you. Bethlehem, you know, in the eyes of man, totally unimportant. But God used it as the birthplace of his son. He chose this insignificant little town to change the world forever. David was a shepherd of the lowest caste in society, almost passed over by Samuel. But God chose this shepherd boy to slay a giant and become the king of a nation. The first disciples, Andrew, Peter, James, John, and the others, who were they before Jesus got a hold of them? Just simple fishermen, insignificant, almost invisible to the world. But God turned them into disciples, apostles, evangelists, now known throughout the world. God even took me. With all my darkness, all my sin. And he said, I can use you. And friend, if if God can use me, he can use you. He can use you. And and God has a plan. You don't you don't have to be you know, some super evangelist. You don't have to be another Billy Graham. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to wait for some momentous opportunity. That may never come. But let God use you. Regardless, regardless of how unimportant you may think you are or what you're doing is, let him use you. Remember what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, and everything you do, whether in word or deed, do it all to the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God chose Bethlehem because he wants to teach us humility. You know, we read earlier from Philippians about how Jesus humbled himself by becoming like us. Paul prefaces that by saying, Let this attitude be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We emulate Christ's humility by recognizing our state and submitting to the will of God. God chose Bethlehem to teach us that God wants to be your bread of life. He longs to satisfy you. so that you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. And God chose Bethlehem to prove us, prove to us that he can use anything or anyone, no matter how insignificant, for his glory. I'll just end with Paul's word to the church at Corinth. He says, consider your call, brothers. Not many of you were wise from a human point of view. Not many were powerful. And not many were born with high status. But God chose the foolish things of the world to put to shame those who are wise. God chose the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are strong. 
humble yourself before God. Let him satisfy you and let him use you. Because he will. If you let him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you, Lord Jesus, and, and we praise you. In this, this Christmas Advent season, Lord, when we look forward to the giving of gifts and the celebration with family, Lord, may we never forget that it was you who came to this earth. You humbled yourself. You were born in this tiny little town for us to satisfy us, and to use us. And Lord, I just pray for, for my brothers and sisters here that we would be open to whatever it is you have for our lives. Lord, we know that you have a plan for each and every one of us. I pray that you would speak to us, teach us, use us in whatever way you want. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.